0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and thank you for listening today. I'm Joel Hilliker. There's a lot of bad news in the world, a lot of evidence of just how rapidly the world around us is changing and how important it is that we have strong leadership to address these crises. This past Saturday, federal elections took place in Australia and it gave us a good look at the issues of greatest concern to Aussies. We'll hear a report from The Trumpet's Australian correspondent and native Aussie Callum Wood about the man his countrymen chose. Then a look at environmentalists and one reason why the Sierra Club and other such groups have the budgets and the priorities they have. Would you believe it partially gets back to Russia? Trumpet staff writer Andrew Miller will bring us an interesting report. For our third segment, we'll talk about something that affects every one of us who eats cooked food. Personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian will tell us why you should take a look at the pots and pans you use because they might be having an outsized impact on your health. For the last word on today's show, I'll give you some tips on how to build a better vocabulary. So we will start now by going down under. With the world in turmoil, Australians went to the polls on Saturday and made their choice for a new Prime Minister. We'll learn who they chose in this report from Callum Wood.
1: If Australia were a house, the curtains would be up in flames, the floorboards sizzling and snapping, and smoke pluming from the windows. Meanwhile, the residents, everyday Australians, Have decided to water the garden. This mentality best illustrates the outcome of Saturday's federal election. With all the major catastrophic nation-destroying problems that Australia is facing, the people chose instead to elect those who campaigned on the issue of climate change. Forget China's regional belligerency, forget the rampant inflation The housing bubble, rising interest rates, the devastating supply chain issues. What most Australians appear to be interested in is solving the issue of climate change. And they've overwhelmingly voted in left-leaning parties to achieve that end. For only the fourth time since World War II, the Labour Party has won the Australian federal election. For almost 20 out of the last 26 years... The position has been held by the Liberal Party. The incumbent Prime Minister Scott Morrison conceded defeat on May 21st, and Labour leader Anthony Albanese wasted little time being sworn in at Government House on the 23rd. Tellingly, during this swearing-in ceremony, Mr Albanese was careful to omit the term So Help Me God from the end of his oath. While some mail-in ballots are still being counted, it appears as though the Labor Party will hold a slim majority, enabling them to rule without the need of a coalition. For those less familiar with Australian politics, the basic stance of the parties is as follows. On the far left are the Greens. Now, this is a small leftist party uh, with a very heavy uh, climate focus but just beside them on the left end of the spectrum is the Labour Party, and after this election it is the largest party in Australia. To their right, somewhat straddling the fence between left and right, is the Liberal Party, which has been in power for many years. Further to the right of them is the National Party, and scattered amongst all four of these are even smaller parties and independents, who are assumed to be not associated with any of the larger parties. And it is the arrival of the teal independents that has caused such an upset for Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party. Now, these teal independents, so named because of a, a similar teal colour that they all wear and associate with their, with their independent cause... These teal independents have successfully ousted liberals in key seats that were considered liberal heartland, untouchable positions in the inner cities. And these these teal independents are predominantly female and, and again, unaffiliated with the larger parties. And they campaign predominantly on two issues. And the first and foremost of those is climate change. The teal independents were also very select in choosing their targets. They only challenged Liberal Party seats and they targeted left-leaning Liberal Party voters, a.k.a. those most likely to abandon the Conservative Party platform. And by taking seats solely from these Liberals, the Teal Independents effectively ended any hope of the Liberals and Nationals retaining and forming a coalition government. And, of course, with the Liberals losing, that opened the way up for the Labour Party. And another sign that the Teals are very much on the side of the ideological left comes when you look at their funding. All the candidates that were successful or were funded and assisted in their campaigns by Climate 200, which is a climate change group led by millionaire businessman Simon Holmes Acord, now, although Mr. Acourt swears the independents are not a political party, it is very hard to see how these quote-unquote independents will operate independently when they reach Canberra, or it's also speculated they won't be able to disentangle themselves from these radical left-leaning climate change groups that funded and organized their campaigns. But regardless of, of parties or affiliations, the underlying point to make is that Australians as a whole primarily voted for more action on the issue of climate change. And again, that isn't to say that the Liberal Party has or did have the answers. It certainly doesn't. But to fixate on the issue of climate at a time like this, when the economy is in such dire straits, when geopolitical issues of a far greater and more pressing nature are bearing down upon Australia, to fixate on climate at a time like this is devastating to the Australian nation. And sadly, those, those issues, those far more pressing and pertinent issues, have been highlighted, at least in part, by the Conservative parties. Now, those parties have lost their position of power and and are losing seats rapidly and losing control on a state level as well. Australia has many major imminent nation-threatening problems, as were mentioned at the beginning of this segment. China, for instance, is moving troops into the Solomon Islands. Beijing is fostering closer relationships with impoverished nations in the Pacific... Its maritime silk road is stronger than ever. And as American influence weakens, China's grows. China is Australia's largest trade partner as well. And as such, Australia lacks the means to really confront it in the region. Australia needs America. But America, of course, is is on the way out of the region. They're pulling out. Their influence is waning. Add to this problems... Internally in Australia, inflation. uh, One of the biggest areas that we can see this is with fuel. The government is currently subsidising fuel 30 cents to every litre. And prices at the gas station are regularly sitting at $2 or above. Food prices are up. Rental prices are through the roof. Interest rates have been rising and are expected to continue to do so. And neither the Liberal nor Labour parties, neither the left or the right, have the answers. In fact, both sides argue and campaigned for this election on more spending, on raising minimum wage and and other financial subsidies and programs that would be incredibly detrimental to the Australian nation. Now, last time that a Labour government was... Elected it took australia into debt. It spent everything previous administrations had saved and yet no Administration since has really had a balanced budget No one has been able to to save and to to put money away in the kitty for the rainy day fund and That same administration Australia was taken closer to China by a mandarin-speaking pro-chinese prime minister and yet ever since Australia has been very pro-China. We've seen the Chinese being able to make uh, large political donations to Australian political parties right up until 2017, until that practice was banned. But the damage has been done. Australia has, has hitched itself economically to China. And as such, China has great leverage and ability to weaponize its economic programs, it has the ability to sway Australian policies and it has the ability to act in the South China Sea and in Southeast Asia without fear of strong reprisal from Australia. And so in the midst of all of these national crises we see Australians fixating on the issue of climate change. Now there are a number of reasons for this. And one could certainly be the fact that Australia has been afflicted by many climate-related issues in recent years. We've had major bushfires burning up and down the East Coast. We've had droughts afflicting much of Australia for the last couple of decades. We've had major flooding, billions of dollars worth of damage in recent months since the start of this year towns like Lismore have been completely wiped out and the rain and the deluges have have smashed Australian coastlines, Queensland, New South Wales, And, and these issues no doubt have had an effect on the minds of the everyday population in Australia. And so it's easy to see why Australians are concerned about the climate. It's easy to see why they worry. However, Does man have the answers? Does the Labour Party or the Greens or the Liberals, does any of them have the answers? The simple fact is no. Australia cannot solve its own problems. The sad reality is that when Mr Albanese was sworn in, he omitted the words, so help me God, yet it is God's help that Australia needs. It is God who controls the weather. It is God who prophesies and forecasts that in the end times, there would be climactic and, and, and major events shaping this world. And among them would be fires, droughts, and the like. We can notice those promises in Leviticus 26. It says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments... And do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat the, your bread to the full. That's verses 3 through 5. God clearly says if we obey him, he will bless us. He will bless the weather. But also, God prophesies that If we do not obey, we will be cursed. There is always cause and effect. And we can see that in Amos 4 and verse 7. It says, And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. God says, I caused it. God caused to be that way. Australia once had a very illustrious history with God. Once Australians were truly God-fearing. And yet today, as this recent election shows, Australia is moving more and more to the left, driven in in large part by, by these radical leftist parties. But they have supporters, they have followers as well. How sad it is that that Australia at a time like this is looking to leaders who focus on the trivial matters and not upon the issues that truly are threatening the Australian way of life. the voice of the trumpet news magazine you're listening to trumpet hour
0: everyone wants clean air clean water clean soil but some people have turned this into a weapon to advance political agendas we've seen this with radical leftists inside america but they aren't the only ones as we will now learn in this report
2: from andrew miller Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded that European nations pay for natural gas in rubles, and many are complying with his demands. Gas distributors in Austria, Germany, Italy, Hungary, and Slovakia are opening up ruble accounts at Gazprom Bank in Switzerland to appease Russia. Bulgaria and Poland are still refusing Putin's demands, but may not be able to do so for much longer. Putin has threatened to cut gas exports to any nation that refuses to pay in rubles, while he sells their share of Russia's gas to China instead. So like many European nations, Poland and Romania may have little choice but to submit to Russia if they want to heat their homes. For years, world leaders like NATO Secretary General Anders Rasmussen have been warning that Europe is overly reliant on Russian gas. In fact, Rasmussen has been warning that Russia actually funds radical environmental groups to steer Western nations away from energy dependence and towards reliance on Russian gas instead. But both America and Europe have disregarded such warnings and continued to sabotage their own energy sectors in a quest to combat climate change. The result? The European Union now receives 27% of its oil imports and 43% of its gas imports from Russia, while America receives 8% of its gas imports from Russia. While the US is still a net energy exporter, The European Union receives less than 6% of its gas imports from the United States. This is because America does not have any more natural gas to spare. It could have quite a bit more to export, but many politicians across Europe and America want their constituents to ban fracking and move away from fossil fuels for the good of the planet. Such anti-fracking activities actually helps Vladimir Putin, and he knows it. What most media outlets don't tell you is that some major environmental groups like the League of Conservation Voters, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the Sierra Club are controlled by a small clique of billionaires collaborating with some questionable offshore funders. One report by the Environmental Policy Alliance shows how the League of Conservation Voters, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the sierra club accepted at least 46 million dollars in funding from an institution called the sea change foundation which in turn is partially funded by a variety of russian money laundering and russian energy investment firms these russian firms include the firebird new russia fund the markuad spectrum the Trioka dialogue the ipoc LAPAL, and the IPOCV LTD. Now, none of these firms have explained why, or th- why they are funding anti-fracking groups in America, but many analysts have suspected that they may be funding these groups because they're sabotaging European and American fracking operations helps the Kremlin by making the European Union more reliant on Russian oil and gas. The Environmental Policy Alliance released its report in 2015, about a year after Russia annexed Crimea. But even before this report came out, NATO Secretary General Anders Rasmussen told The Guardian Unlimited, I have met allies who can report that Russia, as part of their sophisticated information and disinformation operations, engaged actively with so-called non-governmental organizations environmental organizations working against shale gas to maintain European dependence on imported Russian gas. Now, NATO's press office initially dismissed Rasmussen's remarks as just his personal view, but after the Environmental Policy Alliance began publishing details backing up Rasmussen's assessment, more people began to seriously consider the possibility that Russia was funding environmental groups in a deliberate strategy to sabotage Western energy production. In 2017, U.S. Congressional Representatives Lamar Smith and Randy Weber sent a letter to the Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, arguing that Russia's goal was to quote suppress the widespread adoption of fracking in Europe and the U.S., And they did this by funding radical environmental groups opposed to such fracking. Now, it does not appear like this surreptitious activity has actually stopped in the five years since this letter was published. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, James Carafano at the Heritage Foundation told Fox News that the Russians actually fund some of the most rabid environmental groups in Europe because they sick them on the energy projects that aren't Russian. Now, if he's right about this, then Russia's strategy is working out brilliantly for Vladimir Putin. Europe and Russia are shutting down fracking operations while Austrian, German, Italian, Hungarian, and Slovakian companies dump euros and dollars so they can buy Russian gas in Russian currency. The Biden administration even shut down a proposed East Med pipeline from Israel to Greece over environmental concerns, but still refused to sanction the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Germany until the very day before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So the Biden administration bears a lot of guilt for empowering Russia and making Europe overly reliant on Russian energy. America has the natural resources to be more than energy independent. As has the natural resources to be energy-dominant. It could be supplying gas to most of Western Europe. Yet radical environmentalists would rather let Russia control the world's fossil fuel supply while they buy electric car batteries from China instead. The late Herbert W. Armstrong wrote that America's oil and coal reserves are actually blessings from God that most people no longer appreciate as they should. In his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, he explained that the Anglo-Saxon people are descended in part from the lost tribes of ancient Israel. And he cites a prophecy of Moses about the mineral wealth these tribes would possess in the end time. This prophecy is found in Deuteronomy 33 verses 13 through 17. And it says, "'And of Joseph he said, "'Blessed of the Lord of be this land, For the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep things that coucheth beneath, and for the precious things brought forth by the sun, and the precious things brought forth by the moon, and for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and the precious things of the lasting hills, and for the precious things of the earth and the fullness thereof, let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph. Now, The chief things of the ancient mountains and the precious things of the lasting hills referred to in this passage refers to mineral wealth that must be dug or pumped out of the ground. Wealth like coal, gas, oil, and various minerals. Uh, Mr. Armstrong went on to uh, expound upon this verse in the United States and Britain in Prophecy saying that whoever is Ephraim and Manasseh today must be in possession of of the earth's choicest agricultural, mineral, and other wealth. The great gold and silver mines, iron, oil and coal, timber and other resources. What nations fulfilled these prophecies? Why only Great Britain and America? More than half of the tillable cultivated temperate zone lands of this earth came after AD 1800 into the possession of our two great powers alone. The rich agricultural lands of the Mississippi Valley, the vast wheat and grain fields of the Midwest, of Canada and Australia, the great forest lands of the Pacific Northwest and many other parts of the world, the gold fields of South Africa, Australia, Alaska and the United States, the great coal mines of the United States and British Isles, the natural waterfalls and means of power and consequential prosperous industrial and manufacturing districts of England and the eastern United States, The choice is fruitland of our Pacific coast in Florida. What other nations combined ever possess such material wealth? Now today, the US is still the top oil and gas producing nation, but it could produce enough oil and gas to crush Russia's economy and liberate Eastern Europe if it had the will to use its power. Yet many American leaders would rather shut down America's oil and gas production and make deals with Vladimir Putin instead. This desire to sabotage America's energy dominance fulfills another prophecy from Moses. Leviticus 26 verses 18-19 through said that if Israel turned away from God, then God would break the pride of their power. God has blessed America with the resources to be energy independent, And some conservatives still want to utilize these resources. But millions of others would rather let Russia control the world's mineral wealth. Instead of being grateful for their blessings, they have become ashamed of them. They lack the will to use their power, so other nations are stepping in to fill the power vacuum America leaves behind.
0: This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. You are what you eat, the saying goes. But can your choice of cookware also influence your health? Every brand claims it's non-toxic and safe, but are they really? Before you buy a new set for yourself, it's important to be informed to talk about this. We have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, York Mardian. Hello. Hello there. Cookware. Why? Why is this important for us to uh, to know about?
3: Well, this was an interesting study. Um, I learned a lot from it because um, you know not a lot of people understand that cookware can actually be uh, fairly dangerous to you with some of the materials that are being used. If you go to the U.S. Uh, National Library of Medicine, they actually tell you that um, there's a lot of unsafe materials. Um, From cookware, and you can get um, Teflon or cadmium or nickel, chromium, aluminum, even nanoparticles. So this is important because um, before you put a pan on the stove or a pot, you know, you should realize that there are better versions out there that don't impact your health. Um, There's been a lot of innovation in cookware. Um, but the healthiest choices still out there right now are stainless steel and cast iron. Um, you know, cast iron is a standby. It's been around for thousands of years. It's perhaps the oldest and best cooking surface that we have. Hmm. Um, it's just an alloy of carbon and iron, nothing else. There's no additives or toxic substances. The only problem people have with cast iron or carbon steel, which is, um, similar to cast iron but it's just lighter is uh, that there you leach some iron into your food which can be good if you're low in iron mm-hmm. you know um, and and the question is, is asked is this safe you know and a, if you really research this on the surface everybody says no it's not safe because it is true that too much iron can can cause some serious health issues um, but that's not really the concern with cast iron because The American Dietetic Association found that if you do an acidic food, which is usually what leaches the iron, uh, it's like, say, tomato sauce, Hmm. Um, a typical serving is about uh, 11.4 milligrams of iron. That's just over the 8 milligram for an adult that he needs or just under what a woman needs at 14.
2: Hmm.
3: Okay, so for the RDA, now just for reference – if you take uh, an iron supplement, you can have up to 45 milligrams of iron in there. Oh, wow. You know, so, and then people say, well, you can get it in your diet, you know, but your body's really smart in how it absorbs that because you only get about 18 to 20% of iron in food that you absorb. And and then if you have too much iron, the body doesn't absorb more from food, you know, or the other way around. So, I don't see it as an issue because it's been used so long and I use that. Uh, extensively cast iron so i I just think it's it's a wonderful thing to to have in a kitchen Uh, there's a ceramic coated version of it um, and people like that because it doesn't stick that's convenient but here's here's where we get into the problems because you have a coating and that can be contaminated with heavy metals Hmm. so you can actually get in that coating cadmium or lead or titanium dioxide even Teflon on there, which we'll get into. So, now these titanium dioxide nanoparticles are nasty because they travel into the bloodstream and they get into every organ in the body, you know, and they start disrupting our immune system and you get pre-cancer lesions in the gut. Um, And there's a whole list of of, uh, health problems. So, I always tell people, if you have a coating, any coating on any pan, you know, make sure you don't, You watch out for scratching. As soon as Mm. your pan gets scratched, you're going to be in in, in for trouble because then it starts getting these heavy metals into your body. Mm. Don't cook at, you know, 500 degrees or higher. I mean, some people just leave the stuff on a stove bubbling away like crazy. That's a problem too, you know. Um, If we get into um, stainless steel, that's another great um, type of material that we want because it, it's got a thin layer of chromium oxide and that just prevents iron from getting out. But stainless steel as well can still leach if you put in anything acidic. So you can have like a nickel or chromium. It's still a better surface than a lot of stuff out there. So I would say if you're going to do um, an acidic food in stainless steel rather than stainless steel, you know, go get yourself, a say, a, um, a glass pot, hmm. you know. Most other things are fine in stainless steel. Um, it's just that acidic food can leach those chemicals. so and then you just want to watch stainless steel is very hardy. Just don't scratch it. you know, use wooden spoons in there and and just watch for the scratching, and then if it gets you know beat up looking, start to replace it. so and then the third is that tempered glass that's really safe as well, um, because it's not chemically reactive.
0: okay so uh you you talked about just some of the health problems that can be caused by uh intaking some of these particulates from uh, the coated cookware um, and some of the some of the specific symptoms that 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 can create what is, do you have any uh any idea of how widespread those kinds of health problems are I know there are so many issues kind of besieging our bodies these days it's hard to isolate maybe but but how prevalent is it for someone to end up with health problems because of those types of factors?
3: Wow, well, it's funny. I, I was thinking of that this morning when I was uh, uh, thinking of our upcoming talk, and I thought, how many doctors really know mm. what your problems are? How would you know? How would you trace it? You'd have to get a blood test done. And even if you have a blood test and you say, well, you've got nickel in your body or chromium, how do you trace it back to a source? Unless you know what to look for. And see, there's where that education comes in. If you understand that that could come from this source and you understand what could be causing it, then you can actually trace it. But a doctor, I mean, 99 out of 100 times a doctor is never going to trace that. Mm -hmm. So you go get your blood test done and somebody will say, yeah, you've got a high level of nickel in your body or chromium or something. What do we do? Mm -hmm. If you don't know, you don't know how to stop it. That's a really good question, and that question can only be answered through being informed. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why I thought this was a – I started this subject, and I thought, well, this is not something I've really thought about cookware, you know. But the deeper you dig into this, there's actually serious concerns here.
0: hmm So you gave us three types of cookware that are good, the cast iron and the stainless steel and the, uh, the tempered glass. Did I get that right? Yes. So uh, what are some of the uh, no-no list items?
3: Right. So the elephant in a room is really nonstick pans. They're, they're really popular, but they're made with materials. Uh, some of the ma- original Teflon was phased out in 2013. It was so bad for us. You know, they realized that they're causing cancer. But now they've just... Uh, the, the industry has just gone to other types of materials for, for this type of nonstick coating. And these are also now being linked to serious health ailments, you know. And it's especially when you're cooking at higher temperatures because you get that smoke going up. And um, people don't realize it, but there's actually, you know, people have their pet birds dying. They, they're really susceptible yes. to this type of stuff. and. So you're inhaling this stuff. Make sure you don't cook at too high a temperature. I just do not like Teflon. It flakes. It comes off. It, it, it smokes. There's nothing good about it. Um, I would say get rid of that stuff. I mean convenience isn't worth your health. Um, and another pretty common one in expensive cookware is aluminum because it's such a great heat conductor. It's really cheap to make this stuff, but it's super reactive with acidic and salty foods again so it's gonna leach uh, aluminum out of there and into your body and people don't realize aluminum causes Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. the studies are solid there's been a hundred studies over the past five years that found that this is a, a recognized neurotoxin you know and it inhibits so many biological processes in our body where does it come from you go to a doctor how do you trace it again right I mean you do you understand it could be from your cookware they have a what's called an anodized aluminum cookware it's a coating and and that's non-reactive so they've said well we'll make sure that the aluminum doesn't come out and that's more common today of course and not only leaches in very small amounts however the surface of that protective layer can still be damaged so if you're scratching this and that aluminum is going to come out eventually hmm. you, you just have to be careful and then um there's also copper, and the copper is called the Cadillac of cookware. <laughs> it's just the best mm-hmm. conductor of heat. Uh, don't get a a non-coated copper cook cookware because copper is like a toxin. You do not want this. There's actually non-coated stuff out there. You want the stuff that's coated with a, an 1810 stainless steel, so, some kind of lining that stops the copper from going into your body because it's so toxic. Um, but again, Every lining runs the risk of dissolving over time, being scratched, whether through scouring or acidic foods or simply old age, you know. Mm. And I'm talking about this and people are looking at their pots. I looked at mine the other day in our kitchen. I'm going, wow, there's a lot of scratches in here. You know, we have to look at that and say it doesn't look like anything. What's Mm. happening? You don't know until something happens you know chronic copper exposures at high levels can cause some serious health issues like liver damage and stomach problems and, and and immune system problems so you know to to lower the risk of health hazards i would say don't store acidic foods in these type of pots watch them from getting scratched um, don't stack them on top of each other cuz that can scratch the coating as well mm-hmm. You know, and and just be gentle when you wash them. Don't scour them. You know, you you want to make sure that inner lining is protective and and it doesn't let those heavy metals go through.
0: Well, you've given us quite a lot of uh, good practical tips on how to prevent the worst of these problems in in our cooking. Any other uh, ways to avoid toxins in uh, making our food?
3: Yeah, you just want to make sure you cook in pots with relatively stable and un-uncoated cooking surfaces. That's that's what I use. Uh, if it's coated, you have to be really, really aware. So my cast iron or stainless steel is my go-to, or glassware. But glassware is a little harder because it sticks a lot of food stick to it. So uh, you know a lot of people don't like it. Uh, watch your heat setting. Don't preheat. Or, or cook on too high heat because that that's gonna leach that those metals as well um so what, and again, what would
0: be too high of a heat like i would i would assume this would also include uh baking wouldn't it which a lot of that is done with uh, glassware
3: in, in glassware you can bake yes because it's fairly inert hmm. um and, and there's, there's – it also gets into baking ware then where you have aluminum and, and, and all of those type of Teflon and those, you know. And again, you have to watch your surfaces. You have to make choices here. Um, like my wife, she uses – she covers the stuff too. She covers the pans. You know, so she'll, she'll use something in there, um, some kind of wax paper or something to get between the surfaces. Sure. So I thought that was pretty cool. She was showing me that the other day, you know. And if, you're, if, if, it's, if it's flaking or peeling or scratching, just have a look at it every now and then. Invest in another set. It's a good investment if you're looking at your overall health.
0: So, so glass is okay to bake in. These other ones, we do have to make sure that we're uh, careful about those surfaces. It, 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 with either stovetop or uh, oven use, what would be too hot?
3: Well, I know that with stovetop, uh, they say 500 degrees or higher, which isn't a really high temperature. Um, yeah. you, you're just killing food at that. But some people cook at that, right? And so it starts to destroy the material. As with baking uh, materials, you know, it's always best if you if you have cookware or bakingware, call the manufacturer and, and ask them. They make these materials. They understand them. And you also want, so you want the best quality that you can get. You want to ask these manufacturers, what's in this? What can leach? You know, what do you make it with? What, what are the thresholds? And do, does your cookware meet U.S. standards? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's some really high standards. The California standards are the highest in America. So if you follow those directions for use and care, you, your cookware is going to last and it's going to be safe for use.
0: Well, very, uh, very interesting. I wonder what the manufacturers of these uh, these products actually cook their food in. That would be interesting to know. We've been talking with uh, personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about cookware and dangerous chemicals in uh, a lot of these these products that can actually get into our bodies if we're not careful. Uh, he is working on an article on this subject that should appear soon at thetrumpet.com. Thanks again, Jorg. We really appreciate your time.
3: It's great to be here.
0: It's time for today's last word. Did you know the average person uses between 1,000 and 1,200 workable words in his lifetime? And we make up over 50% of our normal talk, recycling only about 100 words. Meanwhile, William Shakespeare, in his plays, used about 22,000 different words. Language represents thought. Elevated language represents elevated thought. The nobler our thinking, the nobler our language. And the more we strive to exalt our language, the more we ennoble our thinking and our being. In a book called It's the Way You Say It, Carol Fleming talks about a common habit of using empty superlatives like coolest or greatest and empty intensifiers like really, just, and so. Here's an example she gives. We just loved our trip to Europe. It was really fantastic with all the sights and stuff. It's just so beautiful, you know. Terrific food and everything. She says, this is empty language, and the reason is, like empty calories, it provides no substance but lots of emotional energy. But contrast a statement like that with an example like, the Serengeti was hot, dry, and enormous. We saw tens of thousands of new and zebra in migration. We slept in tents so it was easy to hear the lions roar at night. I'd go back in a heartbeat. You can see how the second conveys so much more information. And she says intensifiers like very and superlatives like coolest, they do have a place in our communication, but it's a matter of quantity and appropriateness. She says the less you use them, the more meaningful they are. If something relatively common can get you to use terrific, it indicates that your range of experience is limited. Building a robust vocabulary gives you more options for expressing yourself with color and precision and interest. One excellent communicator, Herbert W. Armstrong, set a terrific example of effective vocabulary use. He said that one of his main literary influences was a man named Albert Hubbard. Hubbard was an excellent writer, and he possessed a massive vocabulary, and Mr. Armstrong said, well, he wanted to outdo... Albert Hubbard's vocabulary, Who he boasted that it was even bigger than Shakespeare's. Mr. Armstrong wrote in his autobiography, to be able to pour out a torrent of big words, incomprehensible to any but the highly educated had appealed to intellectual vanity. But he had a boss at the Merchants' Trade Journal who encouraged him to change that thinking. He said, when you write advertising, the purpose is not to impress the readers with your superior vocabulary, Your purpose is to sell goods, services, or ideas. The purpose of words is to convey thoughts, facts, ideas, a message. He said, don't talk to the 2% highly educated. Speak to the 98%. Mr. Armstrong said, we all have three vocabularies, our speaking, our writing, and our reading or listening vocabularies. A lot of people can understand many words that they wouldn't necessarily use. And there are even a lot of words that are uncommon, but they can be understood in context. So he said, immediately, my vocabulary underwent an overhauling. Deliberately, I began dropping out of my speaking and writing vocabulary all the big words not in common usage. My effort then became that of developing the ability to use the largest variety of words readily comprehensible by most people when heard or read. That's an excellent goal, to work to move more good words into our speaking vocabulary, to gain confidence in using a greater variety of words while still being understandable and reaching those that we're speaking to. Then Mr. Armstrong started to study writing style. He said, immediately, I set out to develop a distinct and effective style. It had to be fast-moving, vigorous, yet simple, interesting, making the message plain and understandable. Now, if you've heard Mr. Armstrong speak or you've read his material, you know he was plain and understandable. But he also used a a rich vocabulary in a dynamic, elevated way. And he made the subjects that he wrote and spoke about not only easy to understand, but also forceful and vibrant. Winston Churchill was another tremendous example of an orator and a writer. He wrote an essay called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric in which he said, there is no more important element in the technique of rhetoric than the continual employment of the best possible word. Now often the best possible word isn't the first word that comes to mind. That's where a thesaurus or some similar tool can come in handy using a website like thesaurus.com but it's not just using a more complicated word. It has to be the right word, the best word. Churchill was another excellent example of deploying a rich vocabulary of common words. I want to read a famous section of a speech that he gave on June 18, 1940, before the House of Commons. Now, virtually all the words that he uses are well-known Most of them are one or two syllables, but there's a great variety and they're put together in a forceful, vivid way. What General Weigand called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. If we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science." Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. So in that whole excerpt of that speech, these are the only words that were three or more syllables. Survival, civilization, enemy, including, sinister, protracted, that's probably the only uncommon word, perverted, and commonwealth. Almost everything else was one syllable. Now, imagine Churchill saying the same thing with a less varied, less interesting, more mundane vocabulary. What General Wagand called the Battle of France is over. I'm pretty sure the Battle of Britain is coming. Now, this could have a huge impact. In fact, if we lose, Britain might not make it like it's about to get really tough. The Germans are pretty nasty and they're coming for us. Hitler knows he has to beat us or he'll lose the war. If we beat him, we can save Europe. We might even make the world a better place. But if we lose, things are gonna get a lot harder, and I mean a lot harder, especially when you look at some of the things scientists are doing these days. So let's dig in and get to work. Let's win so someday maybe our children will say, thanks, Dad. Mr. Armstrong gave a lot of thought to how he expressed his thoughts. And he established a public speaking program called Spokesman Club that puts a lot of emphasis on this. In the manual for that club, he wrote, strive for certain goals in speaking. Work to build a good sized vocabulary so the exact words will always be at the tip of your tongue to say what you have in mind to say and to make it plain and understandable. And he dedicated a a page in the club manual to this point called Increase Your Word Power. He gave five potent practical action steps to be word conscious when you're reading and you find words that you're not familiar with and then use them. Read widely, it says, and cultivate the habit of spotting new words in your reading and listening. Get the dictionary habit. When you find a word you don't know, look it up and spend a little time with it. And then use that word. Set a goal for yourself to use those words and incorporate them into your writing and your speaking. Spend a little time saying the words that you learn, and move them from your reading vocabulary to your speaking vocabulary. Drop them into your conversation with your friends or your family a few times. It might feel a little awkward at first, but it's like breaking in a pair of new shoes. You'll soon feel comfortable with them. Build a robust vocabulary as a means of building robust thinking. Elevated language represents elevated thought. So ennoble your language and you'll ennoble your thinking and your life. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at Trumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Callum Wood, Andrew Miller, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Helen Keller. We could never learn to be brave and patient if there were only joy in the world. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.